All right, well, good morning. We'll go ahead and uh, get started then with our Sunday school hour. This morning we're continuing in our survey through the books of the Old Testament with um, the second epistle of Peter. So if you would go ahead and turn to Second Peter. And I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer. Father, this morning, um, Lord, I am excited about what you have for us uh, in this letter, um, inspired by your spirit, written by your servant, Peter. Um, I pray that (laughs) the message that that he had for uh, this church in Asia Minor um, would come through loud and clear for us today as well. Um, May our hearts be open, Um, may we be attentive and, uh, Lord, sensitive to the working of your spirit through your word. Help us, um, Lord, just to uh, uh, be excited by what we see here as as Peter was. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, as I've said a couple of times before, we want to answer three questions when we open one of these New Testament epistles. That is, who wrote it, who was it written to, and why was it written? Um, We've kind of of already answered that first question. This book was authored by the apostle Peter. This is that same Peter who stepped out of the boat to walk on the water to Jesus. The same Peter who saw Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration and didn't know when to shut up. This is the Peter who denied Jesus three times but then preached a simple message at Pentecost and saw 3,000 people saved. That Peter. This letter is believed to have been written um, very near the end of Peter's life, within weeks or months of his martyrdom at the hand of the Roman Emperor Nero um, around the year AD 65. And so we know that it was written, or likely written, from Rome. So who was it written to? Uh, We don't have given specifically uh, in the beginning. It's not addressed. um, But it is most likely intended for the same churches that he addressed his first letter to. That is the exiles and the pilgrims scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All of these regions being um, within what is today modern-day Turkey. Um, which at this time was part of the Roman Empire. So why was this book written? Peter's primary purpose, as we will see going through uh, the the letter, was to warn these believers about the imminent threat posed by false teachers and to fortify them against their corrupting influence and false doctrine. So, you'll excuse me if, uh, if I keep saying Paul instead of Peter through this, through this lesson. I, I had to, like, backspace over Paul about 55 times as I'm writing this. And it makes me feel bad because it's, it's like I'm robbing Peter to say Paul. <laughs> that's, that's my one joke for today. So, um, as we look at this letter, I want us to bear in mind something um, 
a, a few months ago, Tally and I had the opportunity, this has happened maybe twice um, in the uh, 13 years of our marriage, to go on a vacation together without the kiddos. And um, as we were preparing to leave to head down to Florida, there were some, some last-minute details that came up and things that I realized we, we really needed to take care of. Um, and one of those was I had always wanted to, you know, in the event that um, worst-case scenario, our plane goes down and our children are, are without their parents, I wanted to make sure that they had um, a letter, something from me uh, to share with them um, important truths I wanted them to know and to be able to remember after I was gone, to be able to return to and be reminded of. And um, so I was writing these letters at like 11 o'clock at night before we're supposed to catch an early morning flight. I told Tally not to worry. It's gonna hap- I'm going to be able to do this pretty quickly. It'd be like writing birthday cards. Only that's not how it went. Um, I quickly realized... Uh, and learn from this experience that when you're writing a letter that you believe will be your last opportunity to communicate with this loved one, you don't want to waste words. Instead, you will choose them very carefully and intentionally because more than anything, you want to convey and communicate what you feel is most important and most valuable and necessary that the recipient should know and should remember once you are gone. Now this, I believe, is exactly how Peter wrote this letter. Some biblical scholars believe that he even penned this while on death row in a Roman prison cell. He knew that his time was short and that this was to be one of the last opportunities, if not the last opportunity he would have to teach and encourage these believers. In verse 14 of chapter 1, he says, Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. I think it's interesting that he references a conversation, that, that this, this conversation with Christ was on his mind as he wrote the letter, this conversation that began with Jesus asking him, Simon Peter, lovest thou me? He says, you know, Lord, that I love you. Then feed my sheep. So we could look at this letter as the Apostle Peter faithfully feeding the sheep one last time. So in chapter 1, Peter begins by preempting the damage, the corrupting influence that these false teachers could have by teaching these believers, by encouraging them and admonishing them to pursue spiritual maturity and thus be protected against the coming onslaught. So we see in chapter 1, Peter's final word of encouragement. Let's look down and read, read through the greeting. It says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. (laughs) Something interesting about this phrase in verse 1, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. (coughs) Uh, In the original language, that phrase is constructed to make it very obvious 
that our God and Savior Jesus Christ are the same person. Peter is asserting here the absolute deity of Jesus Christ. But also, in the following, in the next verse, we see him referencing the doctrine of the Trinity because he lists um, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So showing that Jesus, who is God, is also separate and distinct from God the Father in his person. We also see later on in the book um, a reference to the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, uh, who inspires the Scriptures. So this phrase, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, is important. Knowledge, specifically the knowledge of Jesus Christ and its effect on the believer's life is a key theme of this letter. The word to know appears in various forms 16 times in these three short chapters. So it comes up over and over. I want us to notice it each time that it does. So let's continue reading in verse 3. His divine power, speaking of Jesus Christ, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So what Peter is saying here in these verses, his final word of encouragement to these believers is, in Christ, you have everything that you need. This is a message that we need to hear. Because for many of us, this sense of lacking something, that we are somehow inadequate, insufficient, or ill-equipped to succeed spiritually, can kind of be the default emotional state in which we find ourselves. We are prone often, or at least I know I am, to this false belief that somehow we don't have everything that we need to live this Christian life as Christ intended. Now, this is a lie that, once believed, will lead inevitably to doubt and to fear and spiritual stagnation, leaving us open to the corrupting influence of false teaching. So this is a feeling also, that Peter himself would have been very familiar with in the past. We see in the Gospels how after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Peter is so shaken by his personal failures, denying Jesus three times, that he's willing to walk away from his calling rather than face the possibility of future failure. He just doesn't feel he has what it takes. But here... In verse 3, he's sharing with the church the truth that he himself had come to know. Jesus' divine power has granted to us all that pertains to life and godliness. What good news. Every spiritual resource, all that is needed to live a godly life, to grow spiritually, is made available to us. It is already provided, and it is secured by His divine power. So what Peter is saying is the same power that Jesus used to call the universe into existence, he now wields on our behalf 
to give us everything we need to live the life that he calls us to. So how can we access these spiritual resources? How do we plug into this divine power? Look down at verse 3 again. He says, The power is granted to us through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. To know the power of Jesus Christ, we must be knowing him. Now, this is not a superficial head knowledge of facts about Jesus Christ, but rather an intimate, genuine, personal, relational knowledge that comes only through time spent in communion with him through his word and through prayer. Um, Something else really exciting about this, this phrase, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. I want us to notice this. It's really, really exciting. So the call that is referred to here is the call of salvation, the call that brings us out of death and out of sin. But it is not only a call out of sin and death, but notice it is a call to something, his own glory and excellence. So we are called out of sin to an ever-increasing likeness to the glory and excellence of Jesus Christ. He's the goal, his glory, his excellence. This is what we are to be aiming for and striving toward. See, we were not saved to live our best life. We were not saved to be made model citizens. We were not even saved to find our life's purpose or to reach our fullest potential. No, we were saved to be like Jesus Christ, to reflect his glory in the world. This is what he called us to. So let's continue reading. Um, Let's start back. I love reading this. Uh, Verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. These promises, these great and precious promises referenced are those made by Jesus Christ which pertain to salvation. Promises like, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. These are the precious promises that by faith we are the recipients and the beneficiaries of. They are granted to us. So let's look down at verse 4 again. We're granted these promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. I'd like us to kind of pause here for a moment and dwell on what Peter has just said. Did he really just say what he just said? That is that the recipients of the promises become partakers of the very nature of God. 
as I read this, I, just, I became ashamed, honestly, to think of how often I have, I have glanced over these verses without giving a moment's pause to appreciate the really earth-shattering impact of what Peter is saying. And that is that you and I, when we are saved, when we receive the promises by faith, we are in some way made to share in the very nature of God. What does this mean? What can this mean? We see it alluded to um, in Ezekiel chapter 36 where God says, I will give to you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. See, Jesus Christ, when he saved us, Not only did he give his life for us, but he gives his life to us. He took our death and gave to us in return the life that is in him. This is what Paul was talking about when he said in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is an amazing truth, and it should be emboldening and encouraging and exciting to us that this life of Christ, his power equips us to live a victorious Christian life. So Peter's word of encouragement in this first chapter is this, that the infinite power of God is exercised by Jesus to grant the believer all that is needed for life and godliness. So in chapter um, Chapter 1, continuing in verse 5, we see Peter's final word of exhortation. So let's read there. For this very reason, that is, everything that he has just named, that we are recipients of the promises, partakers of the divine nature, and equipped by the power of Christ. Because all of that is true, he says, make every effort to cultivate these spiritual qualities. Notice that he doesn't say in your spare time or when you feel up to it, maybe put in some effort to cultivate these things. He says, no, make every effort. Give this everything that you have. This is priority number one for you. I love how reading this sounds so much like the all or nothing, full speed ahead Peter that you see in the Gospels. I doubt if Peter were writing Christian books today, they'd be flying off the shelves. He's not the guy, the skinny jean, latte-sipping YouTube pastor who talks about balance and let go and let God. No, he's more like William Wallace urging us, leave it all on the field. Make every effort to supply your faith with these qualities. Let's go back and look at verse 5. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. So this word that is translated in the ESV as supplement or in the KJV as add to, it means to supply or provide the necessary resources to produce. In Peter's day, this word um, was often used of a a choir master or a... um, Uh, a 
dance director, someone who was tasked with providing or supplying his musicians with everything that they needed to give a solid performance, music, instruments, to supplement them, to supply them what they needed. And our faith is, in a way, like those musicians without their instruments, because we have this capacity, this ability given to us by God to produce something beautiful, something of value. But it is, it is, we are tasked to put in the effort to supply that faith with the necessary spiritual qualities. It says, build upon your faith. So Peter lays out these essential qualities, these spiritual disciplines, these character traits in a deliberate succession so that they actually build one upon the other and support one another, kind of like the layers in the rock formation or the different stages in the construction of a house. He says, supply your faith with virtue. So virtue in classical Greek literature would have meant a quality of life that made someone stand out for excellence. Um, It was used with regard to their um, Greek heroes. To be considered virtuous was to be someone who would perform deeds of heroism. And here, Peter intends it to mean the, the pursuit of moral excellence with great energy and with boldness. He's saying, go for broke. Give every effort to supply your faith with virtue. Does this sound a little bit extreme? Maybe some would even call it legalistic. Does God really expect this from us? What did he say? Be ye holy as I am holy. So to grow in virtue, we have to be willing to ask the question, what exists in my life? What am I pursuing? What am I spending my time on that is not like Jesus? And when the answer comes back, we must be willing to confess and forsake those things. As well, we must ask the question, what might I be doing now, today, to be more like Jesus? And then when the answer comes back, by the power of God, we must go and do those things. You may say, well, I thought growing in Christ-likeness was a process. It certainly is a process, but it is one that we are either actively engaged in or actively resisting. So let's continue. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge. So knowledge means an understanding and a discernment, insight that is informed by biblical truth. This discipline requires diligent study and comprehension of God's word. And knowledge with self-control. Self-control here is is, um, indicated by a Greek word that is actually two words. En, meaning into or within, and kratos, meaning dominion or rule. So self-control here indicates and a dominion within, inner rule, and that is Christ's dominion. So, 
A Christian who is spiritually mature, who has self-control, will not be controlled by their passions, by their flesh or bodily desires, but rather controls and restrains and brings them into subjection to biblical truth. Steadfastness comes next. This is patience, spiritual staying power or endurance in doing what is right. Not quitting, not giving in, but persevering when the going gets tough. It adds to steadfastness, godliness. Godliness indicates a life that is faithfully being lived before God and rightly relating to him in fear and reverence, love and obedience. Brotherly affection. This means to treat one another with an unfailing and sacrificial kindness. Brotherly affection is willing to give whatever is necessary and do whatever it takes for the spiritual good of another. And add to your brotherly affection love. This builds upon the idea of brotherly kindness and elevates it. And for a commentary on what Christ-like love looks like, I would refer you to 1 Corinthians 13. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Let's look at verse 9. Peter says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. This is the devastating result of failing to apply ourselves to the work of spiritual maturity. We forget that we are cleansed from our former sins and fall into them. Peter says that this is like being blind. The, the, the spiritual myopia that, that takes place, you can't see things for what they are. You don't know what's coming until it hits you, and you will be tripped up, and you will fall. So if a believer is faltering, falling often into temptation... It is because their spiritual vision has become impaired through the neglect of the qualities that Peter outlines here. In verse 10, he says, Make your calling and election sure. How do we do this? By practicing these qualities. By giving every effort, as he encourages us, to make progress in them. Because growth in godly living, growth in spiritual maturity, equals an assurance of our calling and election. No growth equals no assurance. Verse 11, he says, In this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So in verses 12 through 15, Peter is saying basically, listen, this is where it's at. This is what it is about. This is the message that I want to go out on. And I'm writing it down so that it will stay on repeat after I'm gone. You need to remember this. 
So in verse 16, he kind of switches gears. And we see here Peter's final word of confidence in the person and in the majesty of Jesus Christ. Let's start reading in verse 16 of chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So what Peter is doing here, um, in referencing his eyewitness testimony of the majesty and what John MacArthur calls the kingdom splendor of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, is he is combating and refuting the arguments being made by these false teachers because they are attacking the person of Jesus Christ, the nature of his atonement, and the reality of his second coming. Peter is is saying, by implication, that I saw his glory. I saw him revealed as he will be when he comes again. He's giving that eyewitness testimony. But in verse 19, he says something more more important, more uh, validating than my own eyes is, is, is found in the prophetic word. Let's pick up in verse 19. He says, we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is one of two most clear and powerful descriptions of the inspiration of Scripture. And it is a, a, a kind of a distinct um, standout element that we find in this letter. But what he's saying is the prophetic word of the Old Testament validates Jesus' identity as the Messiah, as the Son of God, even more clearly and undeniably than what his own eyes and ears saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he's equipping these believers with truth to stand against these false doctrines, these heresies that the the false teachers are going to be bringing to them. So in chapter 2, we have Peter's final word of warning. As we said at the beginning, his purpose in writing this letter was to sound the alarm about this imminent threat of the false teachers' incursion into Asia Minor. And he describes in chapter 2 what these people are like in great detail so that the Christians, so that the believers there might be able to recognize them, to see them coming. So first, he describes their methods, that they teach false doctrine, that they speak evil of the truth, that they exhibit covetousness. They have feigned words, insincerity. That They exploit those who follow them. Uh, He names the heresies that they will teach, and they include the denial of the deity of Jesus Christ, the nature of his atonement, 
and they deny the reality of his second coming. He then opens up both barrels and calls out the depravity of their moral character, accusing them of being unjust, unclean, presumptuous, self-willed, ignorant, corrupt, riotous, spotted, deceived, adulterous, cursed, that they habitually practice sin and forsake the right way, going astray, and that ultimately they will experience eternal darkness. It's Peter's final word of warning. So then in chapter 3, we have Peter's final word of hope and of admonition. His final word of hope is that the day of the Lord will come and the admonition, be ready. In verse 3 and, uh, and following of chapter 3, he anticipates or preempts the arguments that these false teachers and scoffers are going to be using. So let's read in chapter 3. He says, Knowing this first, that all scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. He anticipates what they're going to say, what their arguments will be. And then in verses 8 through 9, he answers this argument. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Peter's telling these Christians that God sees time very differently from man. From man's viewpoint, the second coming of Christ might seem to be taking a long time. It might seem to be far off. From God's viewpoint, it is a short time. It is near. He also explains that God's reason for waiting is not that he is dragging his feet, but he is being patient. He is showing mercy. His mercy causes him to wait. He says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All here meaning all of those who are God's elect, who will come to Christ and make up the full number of his people. Verse 10 um, is another one of the kind of distinctive features of this letter. Verses 10 and 11. Let's, let's go ahead and read there. <clears throat> but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Verse 10 is, is really remarkable. This is one of the most incredible, vivid descriptions of the end of the world that we find in Scripture. And it's amazing to me to see that how, how the Spirit revealed, revealed this to Peter. Um, this is before... I was going to say before uh, nuclear bombs. This is before dynamite. This is before anything. But today, um, having experienced these things and having some knowledge of them, you can imagine uh, this kind of a, 
a thermonuclear event that he describes when the, the earth is dissolved and the heavens pass away with a roar. It's just really remarkable. One of the cool things about this letter. Um, <clears throat> and then in verse 11, he says, Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, in light of this truth, what sort of people ought you to be? The question he asked these believers, we should ask of ourselves now, today. In light of these things, in light of these truths, what sort of people ought we to be? Growing in spiritual maturity. Knowing Christ. Growing in the knowledge of him. So let's continue reading uh, his kind of closing statements, starting in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. I love how in this this last letter that Peter would write uh, that he mentions Paul in such a way. Uh, Someone that he, in the past, had had his um, disputes with, and then he speaks um, so kindly and so well of Paul, of his writings, and he confirms that they belong in the canon of Scripture. And then uh, let's continue reading in verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Paul's final word of instruction. So he closes this letter the way that he opened it, with this statement of truth that pursuing Christian maturity through the deepening knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ will lead to doctrinal stability and will prevent a Christian from being led astray. 